0: Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We've been in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some ushers that are already ushing you guys' Bibles. That's how on top it they are. Um, let's just give a round of applause to everybody that serves. Thank you. I just I feel like I got to call you guys out. From our worship team, these guys get here early, to our sound people, multimedia, people that greet, people that are just part of the overall service of this, of this family. Just thank you for all the to the making of the coffee. Like, how important is that? Like, imagine imagine coming to church without coffee. Like, I know it's kind of a Western thing, but it's it's a really it's the best part of this stuff. So, anyways, um, thank you guys to all of you that are part of. And if you want to get involved and be a part of, honestly, I always tell people this: If you want to take your Christian experience, your Christian walk with Jesus to a, a level whereby you will then begin to learn even more ways of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, get involved. Like, Just jump in. Serve somewhere. Get involved. Get in the community of other people, serving other people. Your Christian walk will begin to take on new dimensions, new flavors that it otherwise would not have in in isolation or or non-involvement. So anyways, think about getting involved. So that being said, we are going back to and almost done with this series in the Summer of the Mount that we've been involved in throughout the beginning or throughout the end of uh, the spring, going on into the summer, going into the summer on the mount. This has been a part of the bigger picture, what we've been calling the year of biblical literacy, of a slide that kind of shows you a little bit of a roadmap as to where we're at reading scripture. So if you guys have been following along, you know that we're starting the book of Galatians today. Uh, if you uh, have completely had good intentions to start reading through the Bible and completely fell off that bandwagon, you're more than welcome to just jump right back in without any feeling of guilt or shame. Again, this is not about feeling bad because you did not succeed or do good. This, there's nothing to necessarily accomplish here except um, just creating new habits in our lives. That's the that's big idea. So for many of you guys um, who have been doing this, what you're doing is you're creating new habits in your life that are building muscle to begin to apply and to read and to imbibe scripture in your life, which that's, that's amazing. So that, that to me is a major, major like bonus right there in your guys' lives. Major win right there. So good job on that. So, that being said, we are circling back to the Sermon on the Mount. We are wrapping this up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so, we've been in this for a while. Hope, hopefully, today will begin to be um, the, the finalization of where Jesus is taking us. So, with that being said, I want to read the passage here. Um, I'm going to then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this. It's the famous passage in which Jesus begins to talk about what's called the narrow gate, the broad gate, or that also in combination of what we commonly call the golden rule. So I'm going to read you guys just the passage out of Matthew chapter 7 verses 12 to 14. I'm going to read this out of a different translation so you guys might not have this. It's going to be up on the screen. You can just follow along as you, um, as I read this to you guys. So he says this, Matthew chapter 7. Whatever you want people to do to you, do that to them. Yes, this is what the law and the prophets are all about. Go in by the narrow gate, for the gate that leads to destruction is nice and wide, and the road going there has plenty of room. Lots of people go by that way. But the gate leading to life is narrow, and the road going there is a tight squeeze. Not many people find their way through. Uh, These are the words of Jesus. Uh, Let's pray. God, thank you for... What you have to speak to us here this morning, even before we begin to unpack it and to think it through and to consider it. But we ask you right now, God, that as we approach you, that you would just give our hearts confidence and trust in you. God, that you would challenge even our assumptions as to maybe even what this is communicating or speaking about. And so, God, we commit this time this morning into your hands and we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and uh, more importantly, hearts that are quick and ready to apprehend and trust everything that you have to speak to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the past couple of weeks, I've been giving you guys a little bit of a definition as to what Christianity is. I want to do that again. Again, for many of you, this is probably a review. If it's not, I think it's, it's healthy to just keep going back and reconsidering this. Because again, I think in some ways, it's easy to forget, and it's easy to circle back into our default mode that the modern western conception of Christianity really for the most part has been reduced to nothing more than just ideas and concepts that if you believe or if you get the magic combo right then you're going to go to heaven someday when you die and what I would suggest to you is though that's not entirely wrong it's not entirely correct either it's a a half truth what I would suggest to you is this is that Christianity really is its a comprehensive way of life that's consistent with Jesus that's ultimately built upon this elemental belief. So it does believe something. It does believe a lot of things, actually. But the fundamental, elemental belief is that Jesus is king, whatever that means, uh, in which this individual and or the community, they have this aim in life of being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and ultimately doing the stuff that Jesus did. That's what a Christian is. And the reason why we've been trying to really constantly go back over this is, again, I realize it's part of it's retraining certain muscle that I think that we, for the most part, as the West, have just kind of fallen into this idea that Christianity is really nothing more than just thinking certain right things about God, certain truths about God. Um, It's not less than that, but it's far more than that, because Jesus invites us to actually follow him. The New Testament phrase for that is disciple, to be a disciple, or a modern way in which we can think about this is to be an apprentice. To be a loyal follower, maybe another way to think of it, a loyal follower of King Jesus. So, what do you call someone that just simply says, Yeah, I think Jesus is God? Do you follow him? No, that's not a Christian. Like, that's not a disciple. That's just somebody that believes certain aspects about Jesus. It kind of is a similar category in which James, the New Testament author, basically states that even the demons believe. But they're not loyal followers of Jesus, right? Demons. They believe. So when Jesus is on planet Earth doing ministry, there are are occasions where demonic, possessed people came up and they announced, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the King. So how do they know this? Because demons know this stuff. They believe this stuff. However, they are not loyal followers of Jesus. So what Jesus has been unpacking in this famous message or sermon that we call it is in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Some have described this as the Jesus Creed. or In other words, this is the idea. This is what Jesus has to say. If, it, if you want to know what it looks like to be a follower of me, to be a loyal follower of me, it looks like the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so that's, that's it. And it's, it's beautiful, but it's also confrontative, and it's challenging, because if you pay any attention to this, that there is plenty enough, plenty of ideas and concepts that Jesus communicates to offend all of us. And up until this point, you have not been offended by the teachings of Jesus because you're like, oh, love neighbors, that's amazing. Then today, there's still hope because Jesus will probably likely say things today that will just sound straight up exclusive. And in our culture, we do not like exclusive claims of saying there's one way. We look at that and we say that's narrow, oppressive, Restrictive. How can you I- identify with that? This is, but again, if we are followers of Jesus, if we're going to be loyal apprentices to this King Jesus, we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. We have to deal with it. We can't just ignore it because it seems more convenient to just not deal with stuff like this. That's not being a good follower of Jesus. We have to deal with stuff that, even for the most part, may feel disconcerting, or even uncomfortable, or even straight-up offensive, Right? Even straight-up offensive. So if you've ever been offended by Jesus, then maybe you're paying attention. Think about that. If you never get offended by Jesus, maybe you're not paying close enough attention. So, that being said, let's begin to jump in and take a look at some of the things that Jesus has to say. So, we'll take a look at basically two sections here. Now, most scholars, most writers, and uh, following through the teachings of Jesus right here, uh, they see somewhat of a break between verse uh, 12 and verses 13 and 14. So, 13 14, they see basically uh, together as a couple, uh, but then verse 12 is a little bit distinct from um, what Jesus has to say here. Again, though all at the same time is all part of one a consecutive sermon. Now, there are questions in terms of scholarship as to whether or not this is kind of an orderly, like, this, did Jesus say all of this in a specific order? We know that in the Gospel of Luke, that there's a recording of what's the Sermon on the Mount. Again, it's a little bit different, some of the different order. Again, the, the idea is not necessarily to focus on the order. It's mainly to focus upon what did Jesus have to say. Let's, so let's take a look at the first thing first, which is what we identify typically as the golden rule. The golden rule. And again, it's a passage that is familiar to many of us. It's the one where Jesus says, uh, whatever you want people to do to you, do that also to them. So let's take a look at that first section right there. Whatever you want people to do to you, do also to them. Uh, another way to think about this is like, if, if you want people to love you, love them back. This is, this, this is a variation of what we typically call the golden rule. Um, so throughout history... Uh, there have been variants, variations of a similar idea. There have been both negative and positive examples of this. Here's a couple of the ones. So the oldest dating idea of what's typically called the golden rule or the ethic of reciprocity uh, dates all the way back to Egyptian history long before Jesus and says something like this, uh, based upon, obviously, interpretation. That which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. And then Thales in ancient Greece Uh, he says this, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Then in Hebrew literature, you have what's the Babylonian Talmud, which is obviously during a time um, uh, before Jesus. It goes on to say this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole of the Torah. The rest is explanation. Go and learn. And then Jesus basically says something that's somewhat similar, but again, distinct. Jesus turns this into more of a positive idea. And again, he says, all of this, whatever this is, to love is the sum total of the entire law and the prophets. Now, in ancient Hebrew literature, there are 613 laws that basically, if the scholars that had studied this stuff had basically pointed out that there's 613 things that God commands his people to do and other things to not do. What Jesus was doing is he's basically saying, look, if you want to summarize, for example, if you were to take the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife or spouse. Uh, thou shalt not steal, all these types of things. Jesus was, what he's really saying is by way of reduction is that if you just love your neighbor, how likely are you to sleep with your neighbor's spouse? If you just love your neighbor, how likely are you to going to steal something from them? If you just love your neighbor, how likely would it be that you're going to pick up a rock and hit them or strike them or injure them or hurt them or maim slash or kill them. The likelihood is, is small. What Jesus is saying is that, look, basically at the end of the day, if you want to summarize, the to sum total, the 613 laws, love. Love your neighbor. Elsewhere, Jesus would say this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, which is it? Love God, love your neighbor. And the answer is yes. Because really, the New Testament idea is that it's it's tapped into this bigger picture as to what is humanity? Who are you? Do 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 we know who we are? So the biblical storyline basically says this. You, as a human being, are the image of God. So what happens if you deface the image of God? So let me give you an example. What happens if you were to take an American flag and burn it? Patriots would go crazy. People that love their country would go be, be frustrated. Because that's not just a flag, it's a representation. Does that make sense? It's an image for something that it stands for. In the same way in the scriptures, human beings, we represent God. So to not love our neighbor, to not even love our enemy, is in a sense what James or what John in the New Testament would say. If you claim to love God, who you cannot see but hate your neighbor whom you can see. Do you realize there's this continuity going on here is what his whole point is, is that you you cannot claim love of God and yet at the same time hate the one that bears the image of God. Do Do you follow? How are we doing? This is the idea. So what Jesus is saying, if you want to summarize the sum total of the law and the prophets, which is in our way of basically saying the entire Old Testament, is you love, do to others as you would have them do to you. Again, the, the ethic, this idea is, is love. And we see Jesus himself embodying this in his own life. So that's that. I'm going to read a quick little uh, comment by New Testament author, or New Testament uh, not author, New Testament professor that uh, has written a lot about the New Testament, a guy named Scott McKnight. He says this, Any serious pondering, of a life, I'll just read it, any serious pondering of life through the golden rule is dangerous for our moral health because it will summon us to live under the king as the one of his kingdom citizens. So just listen to what he's saying. Is that when we listen to the golden rule, it's, it's a summons. It's a summons, it's a call, it's an invitation, if you want to think of it this way, for us to live, not according to our own ethic, not according to our own morality, or not even according to our own narrative, but it's a summons. For us to place our lives under, within the scope of the narrative of the king. Does that make sense? It's what Jesus invites us to consider. Now, it goes on a little bit more intense where Jesus begins to finalize the remainder of this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. As we move on to the next verse, which is what I want to do right now. As he begins to talk about, in verses 13 and 14, as he gets very specific... And this is where we have to kind of spend some of our time and really consider what in the world is Jesus saying. Because, again, in our modern sensibilities, this may be straight up like contradicting to how we have been trained to think in terms of tolerance. That we're to just simply accept or embrace everybody. That all paths are the same path to God. That's, for the most part, the way that many Western ideologues tend to think about things like, for example, religion. But what Jesus is doing is something radically profound. And again, this is why I would say even perhaps potentially straight up offensive. So what is he trying to convey or communicate? Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll read it again. He says, go in by the narrow gate. For the gate that leads to destruction is nice and wide. And the road going there has plenty of room. Lots of people go that way. But the gate leading to life is narrow. And the road going there is a tight squeeze. Or some of your translations, again, this is a translation of that, where he says the word straight. The road to life is straight. Uh, it's not the word straight, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. S-T-R-A-I-T is the word. Is the idea of like a straight jacket. It's narrowing, it's confining, it's restrictive. That's the idea. He says not many people find their way through. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? So this is where we've got to unpack and think a little bit about what's happening here. So first of all, the word, there's a couple things I want to kind of just outline here. What we see is that Jesus goes through Uh, at least four pairs of complementary or contrasting type ideas so he says that there are two gates there's one that's wide there's one that's straight or narrow there's two ways one that's broad and one that's narrow there's two destinations one leads to life one leads to destruction and two crowds the few not many uh, but then many. Then there's this big, broad path. I mean, there's a lot of people that are on this other path. It's kind of the default mode, in other words, what he's trying to say. Now, again, what is Jesus trying to get at? Where, he, where is Jesus within the larger context of the Hebrew scripture and the prophets? So with that being said, I want to take a look at a couple of things before we jump into some deeper questions. Number one is take a look at the word destruction. The word 7, verse 13. He says, for the way to Uh, for the gate that leads to destruction is nice and wide. The word destruction, again, can be a broadly translated word. There's both an active translation and a passive way of understanding this. The active would be this idea of something that's being destroyed, something that is consigned to utter destruction. The passive is something that's uh, perishing or that has ruin upon it. Another word in which it can be translated is the idea of waste. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 26, verse 8 it says, when the disciples saw this, they had indignation, saying, what was the purpose of this waste? The image was that there's a lady pouring out ointment, costly you know, perfume, on the feet of Jesus, and the disciples were indignant, like, why in the world was this costly ointment wasted? It was really wasted. It was on Jesus, right? But that was the idea. So the concept that's basically being described here, one of the destinations is, as he describes, is destruction. Or in other words, we would say in modern terms, a life of loss. A life in which we just waste what we've been given to us. So Jesus is, not, Jesus is definitely saying something radical. But at the same time, it's not entirely foreign to our understanding of life. Of how to live things. How to go about. We know that all of us, by the choices that we make, decisions that we make, how we choose, even now will lead to a life of prosperity, or maybe a good job, or might have a good income, or might drive a nice car, might have a good spouse, or might end our lives in a path of brokenness and ruin because of divorce, because of uh, being jobless, because of being homeless, because of maybe choices that we have made that maybe have contributed to that. So there are choices, this is the idea. There are paths that we can take one that leads to life and prosperity and hope and nice, niceties, one that leads to utter poverty or destruction. That would, that's kind of the similar idea that Jesus basically is basically describing here. So with that being said, I want to understand a little bit further about what Jesus is trying to unpack here. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Scott McKnight, which I already quoted earlier. I want to read another passage that he says right here. It's kind of a lengthy passage, but just what he says. When Jesus climbs the mountain or the mount. He assumes the posture of a teacher and a lawgiver. He issues forth his kingdom demands in a way in ways that develop what Moses taught and then summons his followers to a kingdom of obedience at the end, only to descend the mount. We are then obligated to see him taking the posture of the final prophet, the Messiah. The sermon is that serious. This is the Messiah's revelation of God's will. The major difference, of course, is that Jesus connects his teachings to, teachings to the inaugural, inauguration of the kingdom. He swallows up each demand in the sermon, in the final section, and then says to the disciples, do this. So, first of all, I would just say this, is that some of the questions that we might have when we hear exclusive claims in the Bible is that we're trained to think that whenever you have exclusive claims or someone standing up and saying, hey, I'm an authority on this subject matter, you must Receive what I'm about to say, we tend to think of that in terms of oppression, restrictiveness, um, because there have been occasions where power, where authority, where might has been abused in oppressive instances that has brought destruction and hurt upon people. So when people hear someone like Jesus making exclusive claims like this, there's a tendency within a modern mindset to pull away from that and be like, that's offensive. Should Jesus really be saying that? But again, if you carry this idea out into its longest sense, for example, the typical concept that goes something like this, don't all religions lead to the same path? You realize to some degree, if you were to sit down with a Muslim and say that to them, they would actually find that offensive because they would look at that and say, no, we are very different than Buddhists. And Buddhists would say, no, we are very different than Zoroastrians. There are some radical distinctions between the teachings and where we see things heading and things going. The point that I'd make is the best thing to do is to learn how to dialogue and to communicate what each are saying without trying to impose our modern sensibilities over these types of things and then begin to wrestle through. But in this particular context, Jesus has some things that we've got to look at, wrestle, and think about. So with that being said, What we see is that there is this exclusivity of Jesus' words, but what I want to suggest is that before we begin to try to attempt and understand, let's just ask a couple questions. So first of all, where are we at in the story? Maybe another way to ask this question, where is Jesus in the bigger, broader story of the people of Israel? Because again, when we are reading the Bible, please understand, we are reading the historical, dramatic narrative from another culture. So if we are going to, let me give you another example. I've I've heard this one recently, so this is not mine. This is from the Bible Project, guys. I listen to the podcast. It's amazing. They make this analogy, like if you were to go to another country, right? Let's say you go to France, and you start imposing your English or white American ideas or, you know, just American ideals or ideas upon French society or even Asian society. Do you realize how arrogant that is? To, like, get off of an airplane and walk into a culture and be like, why don't you have McDonald's in every secret? Wait a minute, they already have that. Um, <laughs> begin to impose your ideas, your American ideas and ideals upon them. You realize that's, that's arrogant. So why do we do that with the Bible? You realize we're reading an ancient document. Let's let the document speak for what it says and try to understand it for what it is. Let's not be arrogant or rude with the text. Let's first try to understand where it's at within the larger context of culture and within history. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus was part of a larger unfolding narrative of the people of Israel's history. And what Jesus was aware of, obviously, was the original story that kind of got everything going from the beginning. So one of the things I always try to encourage you guys to think about is that if you ever get lost in a story, if you ever find yourself critiquing or criticizing the Bible because our Western mindsets are offended by that. What my encouragement to you is to go back to the very beginning of the story and begin to re understand where we're at and how we got there. So let's do that right now. Let's go to pages one, ultimately to three of the Bible. And I just want to read some of the story that we find that Jesus is in, that Jesus is ultimately addressing hopefully that might give us a little bit of better understanding as to what Jesus himself is trying to communicate and convey. So with that being said, why don't we go ahead and read Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to pick it up right around verse 26. Again, if you ever get lost in the Bible, one of the best things to do is go back to pages 1, 2, 3 of the Bible itself to reorient yourself to the larger narrative of what's happening here. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said... Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed Adam and said, God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And then God basically goes on and gives them this dominion. So, quick question. God obviously created human beings, male and female, in his likeness, in, in his image, and then God tasks them. He gives them a vocation, if you want to think of it that way. What's the vocation? The vocation, if you want to use terminology, they are vice regents. God is the owner, CEO of the entire corporation, And then he calls Adam and Eve to be the highest level management and says, all of this is yours. In order for you to rule well, you need wisdom. You need guidance. You need understanding. I'm the one who's the source of all wisdom, guidance, and understanding. I created it all. I'm the ruler over it all. But I'm giving you collaboration to be able to rule over it as well. So quick question. Is this a high view of man or a low view of humanity? It's incredibly high. Human beings are, are I mean, think about it. They are rulers. Rulers. They literally rule the world. It's a high view of man, just in case you're wondering. High view of man being male and female. All right? Um, We go on in the next little passage here. I want you to turn to chapter 2. Read a couple of these little passages. And it says, Then the Lord God took man... And he put him into the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So again, God basically gives us instruction. He says the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, again, there's all sorts of hypothetics as to why this and so on. But some scholars, best scholars, I think would look at this and say, the idea of knowledge, good and evil, Being able to discern between what's right and what's wrong, what's life-giving, what's death-causing. God says, I want to be the one to give you the information that regards to that. So come to me. This is not something for you to be taking on your own. Because, look, at the end of the day, after how many thousands of years humanity have, have lived upon this planet, we still have not had a really good grasp on how to manage ourselves or to manage society at large. Is that true? Would you agree with that? I mean, we, we, are, we are more divided, perhaps, than, than, than ever, I guess, though, again, I have a limited scope of history, but the reality is that things don't seem to be getting that much better because, for the most part, we can't agree, we cannot unilaterally agree on what's good and what's evil, what's right, what's wrong, what's life-giving, what's death-causing. But God says, I, I know, I know it all, I'm God, and I will guide you, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's you come to me and I will guide you into life and I'll show you what's right, what's wrong. And then we go on to see in Genesis chapter three, it says now the serpent, so we're introduced to another character in the story. We don't really know much about him. This kind of the, just dropped into the story. We don't know where he came from. There's a serpent, I'm saying it's a he, probably a male. But um, uh, males oftentimes do bad stuff like this. But the point of the matter is, is that wh- whatever the serpent is, we don't know much about where it comes from. Uh, but we're just introduced to whatever this creature is. And it goes on to say, is now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the free fruit of the tree of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tr- fruit of the tree of the garden in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you know that you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took of its fruit, she ate. She saw and she also gave some to her husband who was also with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked and then they sewed fig leaves together as loincloths. And the Lord and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and man and his wife they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Story goes on, but the point that I just really want to make is that God says, "Look, the day that you to the tree, the day that you somehow usurp authority for yourselves, and you try to become the ones that have emancipated yourselves from me, from my wisdom, you will you will die. You lack." the ability to fully discern good from evil. God says, I don't. In other words, what God is saying is that life to you will be found in relationship, your proximity, your relational connectedness to me. If you pull away from that relational connectivity to me, and you begin to move into the realm of saying, we can make decisions on our own. We don't need God we can figure this out on our own God says death will then begin to reign so on the one hand you have life it's in relationship to God you can even say there's light which is wisdom in relationship to God you can even say there's love in relationship to God so in relationship to God if you want to think of this in terms like of a Venn diagram or a circle in this circle you have light life and love in the circle of relationship with God God says, this is all found within relationship and within proximity to me. But to turn away, to move away from me to your own ideas, your own concepts, trying to manage and govern yourself on your own, independent of me, will not lead you closer to light, life, and love. It will actually lead you farther from light, life, and love, which is the opposite. Darkness instead of light. Death instead of life alienation instead of love. This is exactly what happens to Adam and Eve. The moment they eat of this tree, the moment they begin to take control on their own, to in other words, to turn away from God, the big key word I want you to focus on here is the word loyalty. What are you loyal to? What is Adam and Eve loyal to? It's an invitation from God, from Yahweh, to say, be loyal to me, and in your loyalty to me, you will have light, life, and love. In your disloyalty to me, would mean the opposite and would also mean a shifting of your loyalty to something other than me. So here's the point that I would make. Every one of us in this room, we are loyal to something. Loyal to something. None of us can escape this reality. Every one of us has something to which we are loyal to something which holds our heart, something which grabs our imaginations, something which we dream about, we think about, which feeds us, which gives us a, f- a vision for the future and a hope. Every one of us in this room has something which we're loyal to. The question is, is that which you are loyal to going to deliver on the dreams that it promises? Is it going to ultimately lead to life? And here's back into the story of Jesus. He basically picks up in very similar terminology that we see Moses uses in the book of Deuteronomy as Deuteronomy well as Joshua uses, where each little phase of the people of Israel's history, they circle back to this initial story and the question of who will we be loyal to as a nation? If we are loyal to Yahweh, then Yahweh will take care of us. Yahweh will give us life. Yahweh will bring us into the land and we will have the fruit of the land and Yahweh will give us victory over our enemies and Yahweh will be the one that gives us everything that's needed for life. In other words, our daily bread Everything will be taken care of for us. Jesus uses very similar terminology and language, and he basically summarizes. This is the beginning point where Jesus begins to summarize everything by way of contrast. It goes goes all the way to the very end of the sermon where Jesus says, look, there are two types of people that build their house. One builds their house upon the sand. One builds their house upon the rock. The point that I'd make is that Jesus is using, by way of contrast, uh, these aids to help us to ask the question, who are we loyal to? What holds the loyalty in my heart? Who do I invest my time, my energy, my money, my devotion over to? And this is exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian, is literally one that says, my loyalty has shifted from the things that lead to death, and brokenness and destruction, and have now begun to focus upon Jesus. Do you know that's what baptism is? That's how baptism was viewed in the early first century, is that it was like spiritual warfare. It was a way of saying, look, I'm shifting my loyalties. I no longer belong to nor are loyal to the government of Babylon, whatever that is, whatever type of iteration that's taken shape within the present-day context. I'm no longer loyal to Babylon. I'm loyal now to King Jesus. And to prove that, I will go into the waters and come out as a way of identifying I'm a brand new person. My loyalties have shifted. And on top of that, I'm now disloyal to Babylon in its ways. And want to live in a way that's consistent with the ways of Jesus. So that being said, we kind of move back to this bigger question. Again, this idea of loyalty. Jesus is simply saying this, that loyalty to me is a path of life. Loyalty to what I've said leads to life. Disloyalty leads to another path, one that has been repeated throughout history, all the way going back to the garden. So again, let's deal with the final concept, and I'll wrap it up with this idea of, and remind me, before we, we finish, I want to pray. In fact, let's just do that right now. Uh, I told myself I wanted to pray for California and those that have been hit by fires. For some reason, it's coming to my mind right now. So I feel like maybe that's the Spirit's way of saying just stop what you're doing and pray. So is that cool if we just do that? So good. Let's just pray right now for those that are impacted by the fires. I'm not sure why it's just hitting me right now, but let's just do it. And uh, so Jesus, right now, out of loyalty to you and to your love for people that are right now impacted, whether it be down in... Malibu or Thousand Oaks, uh, our friends, family, people that we know that are in those regions, or even in Northern California, and the fire that's uh, impacted and absolutely devastated an entire community up in Paradise. um, Jesus, we ask you right now that you would bring peace, bring hope, bring reorder. God, thank you for the for the many Christians that I've already talked to, and just other good people that have stopped what they're doing to enter into the war zone to be a means of help and blessing and benefit to other people. So God, I pray for those that have lost everything, even in some cases lost family members. Uh, bring peace. We, we can't even begin to conceive or even know or be aware of how you're going to make good out of this. But God, you claim to make good out of really horrible circumstances. This is a horrible circumstance. So we ask you right now that you would just make good out of this mobilize people maybe even there's some here right now that they will become the answer to our prayer even right now by uh, using energy and time and whatever it is that they have to go and be present in some of those spaces so jesus move work empower strengthen take care of everything that's needed provide the water provide the resources provide the clothing provide the shelter uh, provide the comfort to those that are just utterly devastated through all of this so we just entrust it in your hands right now and we pray these things in jesus name Amen. So I want to finish basically just with a quote because what we're looking at is this idea of the exclusivity of Jesus. But there's a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Some of you guys know who he is. He's a uh, former pastor in New York City, author. He's written, I don't know how many, super many books. Um, But he's uber smart and he's like Yoda. And uh, he had written about this idea, what he describes as the exclusivity and inclusivity of the gospel. The, you know this, that the gospel is radically exclusive. Like, we should not be shocked by that. It's, it's exclusive. Let me, let me put it this way. Let's, let me give you another analogy. Let's say, for example, I, I made reference to this last week, that you want to be a marathon runner. Let's say, for example, for you to be a marathon runner, do you realize the degree of exclusive lifestyle you have to adopt in order to be that? And do you realize, in order for you to actually imbibe or to live according to a lifestyle that is consistent with winning a marathon, or getting a really high score in a marathon, I, from what I understand. Well, I guess you can win, but um, at the end of the day, it's like a high, high score, right? High time. Good time. Not high time. Good time. Um, I, see, I don't run like that. I, th- I think you got all crazy that if you do that, but I still love you, and I still accept you because Jesus accepts us. But the point that I would make is that in order for you to actually make that an aim or a goal in your life, there's a certain exclusive lifestyle you have to adopt. That exclusive lifestyle is not restricting in the way of, I'm just suffering. It's actually life-giving because it will put you on the path of accomplishing your goal. The same as following Jesus. Yes, it's restrictive, but it's not restrictive in the sense of saying, poor, woe is me, I'm oppressed by Jesus. It's actually life-giving. It allows those that follow Jesus, that value Jesus, that see Jesus as life itself, and everything else outside of Jesus as non-life-giving, as it, no matter how enticing it is, no matter how much a parody of life it might be, it's not genuine life. that Jesus invites us to trust him. That, that's exclusive. And again, he's exclusive like a doctor. But a doctor comes to us and says, look, you have an in, what would look like an incurable disease or something that unless you do exactly what I say, and follow my pattern or, or, or provisions, uh, death will be certain. And, and if we take this broad-minded view that says, ah, it's too restrictive, he's, he's got your best intentions in mind to lead you to life. Jesus is restrictive, exclusive in that sense that his invitation is to say there are multiple ways upon this planet, but not all ways lead to life. There is a way that leads to life, and it's through me. It's not just simply doing things that Jesus says. It's by way of relationship. It's back, back in the beginning of the story, Genesis 1 through 3. It's not just simply about doing things for God. It's about being in relational connectivity to this God that loves you. Listen how Tim Keller describes and identifies this whole idea of the exclusivity and the inclusivity of Jesus. I'll just finish with this. Listen. So at the heart of the Christian's view of spiritual reality is a man who gave his life in sacrifice for people who did not believe in him. A man who died asking for forgiveness for the people who were killing him. Therefore, Christianity is an exclusive claim. But it is the most inclusive, exclusive claim because it wants you to exclusively believe in the man who died for his enemies and asks you to live and care for yours. Next He goes on to say, so does the message that Jesus is the only way to God necessarily lead to intolerance? It's an important question because that's the big rub. So if Jesus is exclusive, does it lead to intolerant attitude? He goes on to say, Christians can only become intolerant to the degree that they misunderstand the heart of the gospel, namely the good news that the Almighty God himself came to serve us and die for us so we could be saved not because of our right beliefs, and behavior, but by the gift of his unmerited grace. That message, rightly grasped, cannot lead to coercion or intolerance. The gospel has within it deep resources for humility and respect. It is up to Christians to prove this assertion with their views, or with their lives. This is the idea. It's radically exclusive, but it's the most inclusive of all exclusive claims. And it cannot, if properly understood, lead to coercion, or oppression, or condescension. There's no inherent place for that within the context of people that truly understand or that have been rightly grasped by the gospel. So the flip side is, what type of person would we become like? The answer is people like Jesus. People like Jesus. People that love. People that lay their lives down for those that perhaps may even be enemies. People that are other than you. To do this right, to follow Jesus ultimately requires three things. And I'll just back these very quickly. Number one, involves instruction, or we just like to say teaching, learning, understanding. All forms of discipleship involve training. But secondly, involves practice, doing the stuff. This is what Jesus invites us in. And then finally, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaching us, showing us what it looks like, how to truly follow God. So the invitation of Jesus is to look at what path we're on and ask, are we on a path that is pressing into him or are we on a path that's loyal to something other than Jesus? This is an issue of loyalty and disloyalty. So my invitation to you is really just the invitation of Jesus to assess your life, to think about what path are you on, to make course corrections, if need be. So I don't know where you're at or what types of circumstances you're going through, but the invitation for you is to do business with God. So I'm going to pray. We'll have the worship team come on up, and then we will sing, we will respond by partaking of communion, which, again, is this reminder that we are invited by Jesus, no matter where we're at, no matter who we are, no matter what types of circumstances we've gone through in life, to come to a table Crazy things happen at a table. We're coming up to Thanksgiving. Some of us don't want to look forward to Thanksgiving because it's a painful reminder of what we don't have or what we wish we had or our drunk uncle. Or the fact of the matter is, but the table that we're invited to with Jesus is we're invited to be in his presence. Imagine what John says in the book of Revelation. He says, he who has the eyes of fire... And yet he loves us, sitting across the table from us. This is an invitation of looking to the one who loves you in ways that you can't even begin to comprehend. And to realize that his invitation, his call for you to follow is not one to destruction, is not one to subtract life, but to actually multiply life over you. As Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know the true and living God. Christianity at its core is really simply about knowing the God who spoke you into being, who loves you, who knows how to care for your soul by taking away your sins and giving you life instead. So, how about we all stand? I'm going to pray. We'll respond. We'll sing. Partake of communion. If you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we have some space in the front. I'll be up in the front. We'll have some leaders in the front. We have some rugs in the front for you to just maybe get on your knees sit down before God's presence and just do business with him. So wherever you're at, whatever is going on in your life, let's, let's turn our hearts and respond to this God that loves us. God, thank you for your great love. And we ask you right now that you would help us to assess, no matter where we're at, God, that, that we would come to you and trust you. Thank you, Jesus, for how you are working and drawing people's lives out of themselves, out of their sin, out of their brokenness, out of their enslavement to other things, out of their loyalty to other entities that promise much but always deliver little. To trust you.